Welcome to MQL.fm, the Marketing Operations Podcast. Joining me on this episode is Jenna Tiffany, the Founder and Strategy Director at Let's Talk Strategy. Hi Jenna, thanks for joining me today. So let's start with how you got to where you are. What tools you like to use, spectacular campaigns you've run, spectacular screw-ups because we've all done those when it comes to marketing technology or really just anything. Yeah, sure. No, that's good. Yeah, so starting with how did I get to where I am today? I took kind of like quite a traditional route, what I would class as quite a traditional route. So studied marketing at university. I did actually do a joint course where I did marketing and dance because I actually wanted to become a professional dancer. (laughs) When I first started and I got accepted into uh, London Contemporary School of Dance after university, but I got a really bad injury. And so I had to defer it. And then it was just getting to a point where I just don't think my body's going to cope with this. So I still went down the creative route of marketing, but I did do a joint degree course. It was quite a unique thing at the University of Sunderland where they would do the two subjects together. So yeah, I studied that. And then I went into marketing, working at uh, Architectural Eyemongers, which was literally just me. They'd never done any marketing before. So it was really thrown in at the deep end, but also trying to show the value of marketing when you've just come out of university is pretty hard expectation. I guess with one of those first roles, if you don't have any kind of mentor or anyone showing you the ropes, you have to build your skills. That was very much how I first went into marketing was I got an internship and suddenly I'm doing all the marketing and I don't necessarily know what I'm doing or the right way to do it and suddenly I'm responsible for this whole area yeah I was gonna say I think that's a really good thing though because then if you're up for the challenge it really pushes you and makes you want to know more because you have to otherwise you're just going to really like silo yourself into maybe one or two channels and it might not work And there's a lot of pressure riding on you then to make it successful. Yeah, I totally agree. I think it's probably quite a saving grace in some respects because it was a very challenging industry. It was to architects and construction organizations. But I did everything from the website to actually sending out special packages and marketing collateral that we were sending and actually printing and physically posting those as well. So it was a good kind of grounding level for the whole of the whole marketing mix. And then from there, I moved on to a wholesaling company that actually sold cake decorations. So it was very much a factory orientated environment. And it was incredible, their operation, because they took orders by fax. And this isn't that long ago. (laughs) And my whole kind of role, and the reason why they had my role was to bring a digital marketer in to transform their business effectively and to be able to accept orders via their website, which you think, okay, that sounds pretty straightforward. But they had like two and a half thousand different product types and they didn't have any images, didn't have any product categories, didn't have any product naming that could be used. It's like real core starting point from getting a business online in a really rudimentary traditional yeah, way it's not even a marketing job at this point it's literally a whole amalgamation of being a developer if you need to build a website you need to be a product manager to manage this kind of digital product you need to build a database of products you need to build all the SKUs. you need to have all the imagery it's both really exciting and really scary i can imagine if you join a company and suddenly you have to build this whole thing I don't really looking back now I think I just didn't I knew the scale of it but I probably didn't quite anticipate all what needed to be done and it was a real so I was fortunate enough to have budget to get an agency and to do the website side of things but that you know that was my sole responsibility to make sure they delivered what the company wanted but also they had a really good IT team I mean they were small there was like three people but they were really good the biggest challenge out of the whole thing was bringing the whole business together because I had to effectively train the call center staff on how to accept those orders online so that they didn't feel that they're kind of put out of place or put out of job because they were actually going through taking 
you know, orders on the phone, taking them through fax. And here I am coming in all shiny and new talking about a website. You know, there's, that was, I think that was my biggest challenge, but gave me such a good grounding in stakeholder management. I suppose it'd be called a digital transformation now. So it's taking a business that operated from a fax model, which is crazy to me, <laughs> and bringing it completely digitally and completely transforming the way the business operated. So yeah, a real, it's not even a marketing job at that stage. You're kind of doing a digital transformation. Well, yeah, pretty much before it became that, that thing, you know? And I mean, hats off to them for seeing the opportunity because they were ahead of their entire industry for this and really quite amazing so I was there for nine months and then kind of like when that project was done it was just maintenance for me and as you can probably tell by now I really like a challenge considering my first two jobs <laughs> so yeah I then moved on to Northern Rock or what was Northern Rock as a savings website manager and that in itself was just a really crazy time because I joined as one of the final last recruitment drives that they had so I joined and then they stopped recruiting altogether and then there was problems with the bank and the banking system itself and just a real really challenging environment and really fast-paced so much pressure I was looking after a saving website and they didn't even have a CMS at the time <laughs> so I had to and like when I think about this now it really is insane that I even had to do this I would have to use an excel spreadsheet take a screenshot of the web page where the savings rate had changed or any of the copy had changed manually type that into the spreadsheet highlight it with arrows and then brief that to the IT department who would hard code those changes into the website and this would happen two three times a day saving rates are changing all the time and going back to your point earlier of like biggest kind of mishap there was one time where I got the rate wrong I read it from so I would get sent a, a real long spreadsheet of all these different rates and you'd have mortgage rates savings rates and so on and it had the expiry date on and I read the wrong line so I picked this rate briefed it into IT got updated on the website and it was the wrong savings rate. Is there no compliance process through any of this? I mean, I've worked in fintech and I guess it was in the more aggressive kind of uh, spread betting kind of world. So regulatory compliance was top of mind for anything we did. But it seems crazy that any business would operate in a way where, or particularly any bank would operate mm -hmm. in a way where a mistake like that could even happen. <laughs> Yeah, so I think very much down to manual error. There was huge legal compliance if the T's and C's were changing, if there was any new marketing copy, but because it's just a rate change, nothing else has changed. So that really was normally seen to be a little error of that. But obviously you've got a lot of people involved manually going in, updating this. But it did mean that they got fined because it had been up for half a day but you know what it was a real it was a real turning point I think for the team and the organization to just look at this and think this is not a process that is sustainable and we know it's needed to be done for quite a, a long time now we need to prioritize it and so I was involved then and they spent my quarter of a million on doing their new savings websites was a really great project to look at how they could automate that whole system it came out of it but yeah it was definitely not a great time for me as a recent graduate kind of third job in no, i guess this must have been like pre because when did they go under was it 2007 or 2008 maybe actually 2008 2009 yeah so around about that time 2008 to 2009 and you know it was just a very it was a very difficult time it was hard to see people that you'd worked with being taken into a room, getting told they got made redundant. And that would be happening every day. I guess that's probably something that is very common right now in the current environment we find ourselves in. I know that I've worked, I mean, the previous company I was at for my most recent one, there were large teams being made either furloughed or being made redundant. And it's not a nice atmosphere to kind of be involved in. No, it's re it is really hard. I think that's the bit that most people do you think they forget about it. I think we don't want to think about it. It is it has such a, a knock on unmotivating 
atmosphere and it's really difficult because you don't want to say the wrong thing either you have to sympathize with the people who remain there as well and obviously you sympathize with the people who are being let go because their situation is terrible but the people who are somehow remaining and having to live with the fact that you know their their job is secure why them you know that kind of stuff is is very difficult to kind of I guess sympathize with that kind of situation and the kind of stress and the strain that comes with being put in that situation as well yeah and it's having to then just get up and leave is so difficult for anybody and that's not to say I've seen some really amazing people lose their jobs and you just think wow and yeah I think it really makes you stop and think and just it just yeah all around it's just a really difficult situation and and it was quite a it was quite a grounding situation to be in and it really made me question is this what I want to be doing for a long period of time because am I going to be that devastated if I lost my job here or I need to really do something if I've got a short period of time I need to make the most of it because I don't know if it's going to exist for that long you know like my parents' mindset is, oh, you'd be in a job for 20, 30 years for the rest of your life from the age of 16 onwards. And I, I saw my dad get made redundant in a really awful, awfully handled way, been there for 25 years and just forgotten about. And I watched that when I was at university and I thought, you know, I want to make sure that what I'm doing, I really enjoy, but also that I get the most out of it as much as the company gets most out of me being an employee. Do you think that's something that's probably generational, as in our generation are, I, I don't know about other people, but I've been made redundant a number of times. And I imagine it's something that people in our generation have to now accept as being part of what happens at work. So it's it's very weird to think like your father's example, who had that job security for 25 years and it was terminated in a terrible way. For us, it's maybe we have two, three years security sometimes, and sometimes not even that. The resilience it builds in people now in terms of we need to think for ourselves, we need to think about ourselves in terms of maybe we need to change jobs more often than people previously would, or, or otherwise, I don't really know. Yeah, I think you're right on that. I think it's generational. I also think in the digital industry, you probably see a lot more movement of people in jobs early on in my career I was moving jobs every year and a half you wanted to grow your skill set and you wanted a different challenge you wanted to explore another industry and so you did that and yeah of course people frown upon and they still do today which I will never understand when if someone's looking at a CV and why have you moved around so much and actually no that's a different way to look at that is okay what was the reason for you wanting a new challenge because actually you could have outgrown the previous jobs nowhere further to go or it just wasn't challenging enough it wasn't making you want to get up in the morning and like really get going with energy. I think it's a really healthy thing to be moving around, particularly early on in your career, every year, year and a half, if it is giving you a different angle, a different perspective, a different challenge. I think it's both generational and industry-led entirely. I think digital changes so quickly and marketing as well that we need to be moving around quite regularly <laughs> to keep on top of it. Digital changes really quickly, but I think one thing you probably know because you do a lot of marketing strategies that actually fundamentally marketing hasn't really changed in since marketing started, really. We're still preying upon the same psychological heuristics in terms of anchoring and all these things. And maybe the channel or the particular tactic we use might change and that changes very often but fundamentally what we do in marketing hasn't changed for a, a very long time and it's very interesting to think about how our jobs are so focused on this technology but actually what we do stays the same the fundamental basics of marketing hasn't changed the the tactics and the channels that you mentioned yeah of course that's something that's you know constantly evolving it's really interesting that you mentioned that because I'm actually writing a book about marketing strategy and I'm at, I'm at final manuscript stage. My God, thank God. Really exciting. And my whole, my whole passion for writing it was to try and give a practical, informed view of what marketing strategy actually is. Because I think... There's such a misconception even now between strategy and tactics. 
and a lot of misspoken concepts about strategy and tactics that just creates such a blurred view. And I think organizations think they have a strategy, but actually all they've done is define the tactics. What would you define strategy as being? Strategy is the what, where and why of what you're doing. And the tactics is the how. So unless you know why you're doing what you're doing, you shouldn't be able to determine how you're going to do that. So I see it all the time in email. I'm sure you do as well. We tend to focus, and I think this is kind of the problem with a lot of digital, we tend to focus so squarely within our own specification, within the technology that we know, that we lose sight of why we're doing something and we just focus on how we're doing it. And you see that with email and other channels all the time, you know, we're for, for email, we, we talk about, you know, we need to send a newsletter, we need to send something. Why are we sending that? And often we lose track of why are we trying to re-engage these people? What value does an email open or an email click bring to the business? And we're so fixated on this short term, how we're doing things. So it's really interesting to, to hear what you're working on. I'm definitely going to be reading that book. Thanks. Yeah, it's gone. The publishing date's gone back a little just because of COVID. So it will be released next May 2021. I'm fortunate to have really amazing publishers. So I'm very excited to get it out. It's been a long time in the making, a couple of years now. And for me, it's I've got new frameworks in there to really just try and simplify the process because actually strategy typically is looked at as something takes a really long time to do it's really complicated and then when you've done it's just going to be this like huge like manual that's just going to go into a drawer and never be looked at again and actually strategy doesn't need to be a that complicated yes it should be researched and informed but it should be something that the whole business gets involved in not just the marketing department and I think that's very much a missing piece in many companies today. I think and this is coming from my own experience and I ran some surveys on Twitter and within the Email Geeks Slack community. So I asked what percentage of people had actually studied marketing. In terms of people who work in email marketing, what percentage of them have a formal background in marketing? And it was quite interesting because about 70% had no formal qualifications. So a lot of these people are, and myself included, we, we learn by doing things and we lose sight of all of this great knowledge that has existed and been written just because we we studied other things. And so it's really interesting to think how, how that can be improved, what we can learn, because I think that kind of leads to the short side. So you kind of, I think, probably see in your day-to-day work in terms of strategy not being done correctly in a lot of places just because people don't necessarily know the correct way to do it it's really interesting that though because actually it gives such a nice and unique perspective on where everyone's coming from all different you know backgrounds which is why i think email particularly the email community is just so vibrant so much to offer because it's such a great mix of people skill sets yeah i typically see a lot of clients either misinterpreting strategy or what I tend to get the reaction of is, yeah, we know we need to have a plan, but we don't want to spend that much time on it. So can you do that really quickly? And then we want to get on to the tactical <laughs> Like, yeah, but it needs to be the other way around because the tactic bit can actually be pretty quick if you have, if it's informed and you've done your research and you know what you're going to be doing because the strategy basically outlines all of that for you. I guess it sets kind of the targets that, each of those tactics are aiming for it's crazy how many times i've worked in marketing businesses where that we've had no formal strategy everyone is just coming up with their own little tactics and they have kpis but they're not necessarily informed by any kind of overarching broad strategy yeah and that's where that short-termism comes in and we need to put more offers and we need to do more sales and we need to do more discounts because the overarching business objective hasn't been aligned to the marketing objectives and therefore it's really difficult to demonstrate the value that marketing brings if you don't align it to the business. I think a great example of that is, I don't know if you subscribe to ASOS's emails, but over the last, I guess, couple of years, all I've received from them daily is emails with discounts. 
And now I only associate ASOS with discounts. And that is solely the responsibility of the marketing team who have devalued the brand in my eyes. I don't know whether that's their plan or their strategy, but that's certainly the outcome that has happened from years and years of being blasted with discount, 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 sale, discount. And it's such a, I've spoken about this a few times. It's really interesting when you get the perspective from your email customers to your social media customers, to your actual customers that don't receive it either, because the perception of all three would be so different based on all what you send, particularly if your customers aren't, they're not involved in all three of those kind of categories. And it's, it's really interesting. I, I think there's a real challenge right now of organizations causing long-term damage to their brands in a time now where it's really very much panic marketing where they feel they need to be saying something they need to make sales so they just go straight in there with a with offers we've also got black friday coming up it looks like it's going to be a month long this year you know and that all sounds great for getting some numbers on the spreadsheet to say right yes we've got some sales coming in when you then look at the long-term impact six months later you start to realize how much damage that's caused that short-term activity and it's a great example that you have a Bazoft because they had such a brilliant brand a couple of years ago really brilliant prestigious you, you knew what you were getting from their positioning was really clear and they've completely diluted that with short-term tactics why do you think that is why do you think brands are turning to this short-termism a lack of understanding strategy, I think, is the biggest reason. I think not understanding it, not seeing the value that a strategy can bring. And that is really what I'm hoping my book will show marketers that, do you know what? It doesn't have to be this audious process. It will give you instant quick wins. You can have a quick win short-term plan that is part of a bigger long-term strategy piece. And that doesn't mean it has to be five years because who knows what's happening in six months time let alone that at the moment but there's still there still needs to be that planning approach if you're constantly in the ad hoc cycle of what we're doing today what we're doing tomorrow that's constant firefighting that is really difficult to get out of is where's your marketing team at really quickly unmotivates people starts to lose a direction the business starts to just wander along as people are changing decisions all the time in our top plan and that is all because there's a lack of strategy which can also be stemmed from a lack of vision a lack of structure there's a lot of different things within the business can have a big impact on the success of a strategy do you think some of this is also potentially tied to you know we were talking previously around people just move around a lot more now um, in terms of their career, do you think there could be, at least within the executive suite, could that be some a kind of source of this lack of long-term thinking within a business? Potentially, I'm not. I don't. I'm not too sure on that. I think the short-termism has really stemmed from the massive increase in development in tech and how quickly that has changed and that gives a kind of instant need for a business to keep up although some don't and then sadly cease to exist because they just don't keep up with technology but alongside that there's customer expectations are changing all the time so if businesses are with that short termism trying to keep up I can see how you get into that cycle of constant you know flux where you're constantly changing all the time you haven't really got that clear definition of what you do or where you're going, what your ambition is. Also, I think there's, it also depends on what industry. There are times when to be constantly changing needs to happen because you're looking to be sold within next year or so. Then you might need to do things that from outside looks a little bit crazy. <laughs> but internally, there's a reason. But then again, you'd have your plan and there's your, your vision and your strategy there. I, I just think the generalness is just, it's, I, I think it's just pure short-sightedness at times. I think actually it's not being able to assess the value 
and not been able to assess that damage that it has not only to their business but also to their customer base because it's like going to pizza express i doubt anybody sits there now and pays full price and i've sat in there myself and started looking for a voucher thinking i'm probably going to get 30 percent off this bill why not try and find one but it's educated the customer then to a point where no one would ever pay full price for their pizza anymore and then the damage is already done then they can't get out of that cycle unless they reduce their list price even then i guess people would still because they're so used to seeing a discount would be chasing this discount yeah and then it's a question of okay is that the type of customer that you really want but to do that you've got a you have to take a, a hit temporarily to get long-term gain i think a lot of organizations aren't willing and can't i can't actually not in a position to test that out to try that out you know it, it really takes some perseverance and some strength to say do you know what we need to stop this now because actually our customer isn't this type of customer who's also is always discounting wanted discounts but we want to go for the long term not so price conscious customer to do that to do that switch is a gradual process and what typically happens my experience they get about halfway through and then the senior leadership team the owners decide actually no do you know what we just need to just go back to discounts let's just go back it's i guess the panic sets in when they start seeing the revenue fall yeah they start seeing revenue fall but then you think how much profit is eaten away at giving all those discounts and that's the bit that i don't feel and i've never really seen true analysis on that in organizations that are heavily discounting it's it's coming off the bottom line all the time so on the analysis piece, do you feel that marketing teams are well-equipped to deal with data, or at least the quantity of data that they collect? I know from my own experience, I'm not a statistician. I can read a spreadsheet, but I'm, I suppose there's a lot of stats that are just outside my knowledge. I don't know how to do them. And I feel like working in some teams that I've worked with, that has been kind of a common thread across everyone. We all want to look at data, but we don't necessarily know what we're looking at or why we're looking at it or what we're looking to get out of that data. Do you think that's something that is common in other teams? Yes, really interesting, the data piece. I think typically I feel like there's a general fear of data, of looking, really trying to analyse data it's a it is a skill it's a skill to be able to go in and analyze data i've been fortunate enough to work with some really amazing data analysts it's a, a two-person skill where the data analyst is really good number crunching and they love it you know that's what they love to look at a spreadsheet full of numbers unbelievably so it's like i'm i love data but that's getting a little bit too far but then yeah but then you have the marketeer who and typically it's strategists that would then come in and say this is a question i have what does this mean and does this correlate with this and okay so if that number comes out there does that mean that this happened and being able to guide the data analyst into seeing what those insights actually mean and that i think is the biggest gap so we have amazing data analysts, we've got amazing strategists. Sometimes the two just don't work well together. I've seen that quite a bit. It's almost making the data analysts be commercially minded, which is really difficult because they're into the numbers. That's what I was going to say is that you have data analysts who lose the context of the data that they're looking at. And without that context, they don't necessarily know what to be looking for and why something might be important. And that's definitely something I've experienced as well, is that I've worked with analysts who are amazing. Like they are so talented, but without the insight of why a campaign was run, what we were trying to promote, why we're trying to promote it, they lose sight of what is potentially important. And that's not to say that they don't surface hugely valuable insights, because of course they do. But there is that gap between strategy and data that is very evident, I think, in a lot of businesses these days and i think that gap will only start to there's 
AI and machine learning has a part to play within this to help the data analyst analyze, you know, more data than a human could do in a lifetime, you know, in, in minutes in some cases, but it still needs that human to be able to pull out the right context that you just mentioned for the company, the customers, the product and so on. And it still needs the marketeers intervention in that. I think whilst the technology is definitely there and I've seen some really amazing things with other clients using AI machine learning, there's still that gap of being able to ask the right, the, the most relevant and right question to really glean the insight because you can have all the data in the world but if you can't analyze that from a strategic standpoint and you can't analyze it from a data analyst standpoint of being able to keep that context and not just look at the number, then you've really got, there's no value there. You lose the value piece of the data. It's just, it ends up just being a number without any with kind of no story around it. There's that thing about the marketer being a storyteller. And I guess this is where that becomes interesting because we need to use these insights that we glean from the, these numbers to tell a story and whether that story is to our customers or whether it's to internal stakeholders, we still need to be able to tell that story. And inform future decisions, ideally, and stop doing things that don't work, do more things that do work and test things that actually the data is telling us this is going to be pretty, this could be of good opportunity for us. And having that to back up decisions being made. I guess sometimes it can be quite scary in the opposite direction where you've been working on something and actually it turns out it doesn't work. And it's not bringing the results that you had expected or hoped for. I guess it can be quite scary to turn around and realise it wasn't wasted time because you learned something, but it's something you now have to start again from zero. I guess there's kind of speaks to the resilience that you sometimes find within marketing teams where people are able to switch and to change things and to, to learn from their mistakes. I think that's quite a, a fun thing I've seen in a lot of marketing teams I've worked with. Yeah, definitely. I think that's really, that's the creative part of marketing. Some things are going to work really well, other things aren't, but it doesn't mean it's wasted budget, wasted time, because you've got a really good learning and understanding from that. And I think that's the bit when the short-termism that marketers lose out on, they lose out on those valuable learnings and insights that helps inform future activity. And for me, those are the bits that you really want to hone in on. Those are the hidden gems to uncover, because that's what's only going to make your marketing better for your, your particular target audience. So when you work with the client to help them with their marketing strategy, how does your process work? How do you come into these organizations and make these big kind of strategic changes for them? It really varies in terms of how that looks. So my agency, that's what strategy has a team of 10 and it depends on whether it's a particular channel or it's overall business marketing strategy whether or not they have an existing one or they want something new. I've taken an example for a client that I recently worked with where I actually worked on a consultancy basis. I don't tend to do that as much anymore because it doesn't give me enough time to run my agency. But during times of COVID, it was a really good opportunity to work for a technology startup. They had been operating for four years. They had done marketing in their own words, didn't really know what they were doing. Scarily honest. Yeah, scarily honest, but good, refreshing to hear that. And they needed someone to come in and pull their marketing activity together, not only from a planning perspective, as it turned out when I then joined, but actually everything from budgeting to structure to people to processes uh, to automate, to just basically everything, which was a great challenge to tackle. So my kind of first starting point with every client and really was very crucial for this one was to understand what are they trying to achieve? What is your goal and ambition? And typically I'd speak to the CEO and then the different leadership team. What I then start to identify, and it's just an informal chat, what I start to identify is that there's inconsistencies 
and where everyone thinks the business is going. <laughs> so that's problem number one. <laughs> and then I speak to the marketing teams. So I speak to the different members, general chat with them. What do you think is going really well? What do you really hate about doing in your job? And like having a quite an honest conversation because you want to be able to get those things out pretty quickly because it starts to identify that actually there's a problem either in the process in the marketing team or in the company itself or actually in how they've been conducting marketing and I like to just get all of that out on the table pretty quickly particularly when it's a full marketing piece like this so that you can really hit the ground running because clients want to see changes they want to see improvements they want to see results really quickly and then once I've got all of that together I then conduct my own kind of thoughts and like a swap really on the structure and the team and what I think about the marketing and find out all about their processes, what they, how they currently do things, which some things is just mind boggling. <laughs> you think, why are you doing it that way? And then really trying to identify what are those key challenges. And for them, their key ones were they didn't have a clear vision. They didn't have a clear product, their structure and team didn't fit the business for where they wanted to actually go for what we then established was their vision, which that's a big rub in a marketing team. And I'm fair in some instances where actually the roles completely changed. The expectations changed. There are other challenges that they just didn't have a plan. So because they, they felt that they didn't really know what they were uh, in their own words, what they were doing with marketing or, you know, marketing is this thing over there. It meant that they were changing their mind every couple of days of what they wanted to do. So the team, who then you established the structure's not working, the roles and responsibilities have changed, are then getting told to do different things every two days. <laughs> so you start to see then, okay, this is eating away at any of your potential marketing success. No matter what I recommend you to do, if you don't sort these issues out here, it would just be the same problem. So that was my starting point with them and then making sure that there's processes in place, just not anything that's arduous, but so that if you're doing something that's quite repetitive or needs to be done every week or every month, that it's a clearly defined, efficient as can possibly be process. And if it can be automated, then that's what it needs to be automated. So it sounds like actually, so you look after the strategy side of things, but actually you're coming into businesses and making procedural changes to the business as a whole in some cases which is really interesting because I guess there it's a more full kind of consultancy uh, at that stage it depends really on what their challenge is but yeah a, a strategy doesn't operate marketing doesn't operate in a vacuum so it you know it can't be that successful if there's all these other missing parts and all of that there is just about the marketing and, and the senior leadership team. But then, of course, there's other departments that feed into that as well. So if the marketing team aren't fully clear of what the product does, then there needs to be better communication between the product team and the marketing team. And so how do we make that better? So I, yeah, I suppose I come in like real top level and look at everything because even with the best strategy in the world, the rest of the business isn't bought in or they're not all going in the same direction or there's barriers and, and challenges and there's conflicts going on, then the marketing strategy won't be as successful as it could be for the business. So I come in from that angle. And sometimes it is purely, we need to improve our email marketing. If we'd like a content strategy, then that's different. That's really channel orientated, but I'd still want to know what the vision is of the business what's the ambition so that we're aligned with that and setting objectives but what was particularly interesting with this client was just getting that immediate buy-in <laughs> because I would say it is quite rare but I think it comes to a point where you have no other choice yeah absolutely and I guess if they've gone to the effort to hire you they must realize that they need to change something yeah I think the, probably the biggest hurdle for me to overcome with that challenge was just the scale and how much time these things take to embed it's not just a case of just 
you know, bringing in a new team or creating a new structure or bringing some new processes, those things have to be embedded to become BAU. And that is something that can happen in two weeks. And all of this has been done remotely <laughs> during COVID, which I'm used to working remotely, probably, you know, obviously not in these circumstances. But for other teams and departments, they're not, you know, some people really do not operate well working from home. They like to be in the office. And so you have to really factor that in as well in terms of timing and timescales. In terms of marketing, that there's a whole extra layer of complexity that I've experienced, which is how do you handle data? Particularly GDPR is now a thing, has been for a while. How do you handle complex customer data? Is the business kind of digitally ready in terms of, do they have a, a CRM? Do they have the adequate marketing automation tools? Do they have adequate ways to protect PII? And I mean, I, I've seen a lot of businesses still just sharing CSVs around with email addresses and names and lots of stuff that's very sensitive that shouldn't be shared. And in many cases, this is happening to, you know, people have their own devices. They're not necessarily using a work laptop or work computer. So that's a whole extra fun layer of challenge that um, I guess we've all uncovered over since February, March. It's brilliant that you bring that up because I haven't seen anyone talk about this yet, but everybody's using their own machines at home in an environment that can't be securely locked down in a sense of how it would be in an office. And I haven't seen anyone talk about this yet. I recently joined a cybersecurity company, so I've been thinking about this stuff a lot. I know that our content team have written about this particular challenge recently because it's a very common one now. But it's, I mean, there was an incident with Klarna a few days ago where they were processing people's data that they shouldn't have been for marketing purposes. And these things do happen. And that's probably the least of our worries, I guess, in terms of privacy and security and handling PII. Yeah, I think I've really had like my eyes opened probably in the last four months in how event organizations, the majority I would probably say are still sending CSV files without password encryptions. You know, I've had to, with that client in particular, actually, you know, I've had to create a whole documented process of what happened, you know, an incident report, how this came to be, how we tried to resolve it, how they've resolved it, you know, who's been affected, and just trying to educate other companies that, that you shouldn't be accepting anything that's like this without password encryption. You know, it should be sent securely. And I'm really quite amazed at how that's still happening and how we overcome that. I'm not too sure because I'm just, some, some as you know, I'm just completely dumbfounded that it's still not just standard procedure. And I completely appreciate, you know, that we're all operating in really difficult circumstances at times. I understand that and things happen. I completely get that. When it then becomes, when it's not become a standard press, you know, two years later, that's a big problem. I guess it comes down to the digital transformation we were talking about earlier in that businesses maybe haven't adopted the tools they should. Maybe they're not using CRM when they should. Maybe they haven't identified clear processes on how to handle customer data. Uh, maybe the teams aren't trained properly to use the tools that they have. And I've worked in businesses without CRMs. And when you're doing email, that is a gigantic pain in the ass, to say the least. But yeah, it's interesting to think, you know, how is this data being processed? Who's looking at it? Who's got copies of it? Because under the GDPR, we should be making sure that we know all of these things. Yeah. I think the biggest challenge with GDPR is that it's an upfront cost for a company to implement these changes. Now, I'm not saying that it's not a valid cost, because of course it is. But at this moment in time, I just cannot see many organisations wanting to spend time and commit spend that could have been used elsewhere to implement these processes. Granted, they should have been done two years ago, but I think that's probably the biggest stumbling block from the very beginning in that there should have been some incentive. Unfortunately, it's kind of the world that we operate in, in that there probably needed to be some form of grant or support or some more online training. You know, like how 
HMRC have handled the whole coronavirus um, furlough scheme with regular um, updates, webinars, you know, it's constantly spoken about. That same approach for GDPR, we wouldn't even be talking about this today, I don't think. I believe the ICO might have, probably around March, may have said they were not going to be focusing on businesses that are working from home because they understand the complexities of handling customer data in these circumstances. So I believe their approach, and I could be wrong here, but their approach may have been to turn the other cheek to these things happening, which, you know, is good from a business perspective, bad from a personal perspective. Yeah. This should be, it should be standard business practice. I think really the ICO should be looking at why it's not standard business practice because ultimately I've seen lots of really good positive things come out of GDPR. I do think there is generally a reasonable awareness of GDPR. I think consumers particularly are very aware of signing up and will hold brands responsible that aren't doing that. And I think that's you know, that's really positive because consumers outside of marketing, like my mum, for example, had no idea the amount of access to data analysis that we have as marketers. So I feel like that's a real moving point. But yeah, I always kind of come at it from a consumer's perspective. And I still, my email's getting signed up to things I didn't sign up for. And so I feel like this is an ideal time to have a really good turning point. It shouldn't be, but it becomes like almost... A distinguishing factor from an organization that really does take data seriously and respects data and goes out of their way to make sure that they are as robust as possible mistakes happen it's how how you react to that and the processes that you had in place to try to prevent that is what um, customers see and they will see through any organization says you know we're really sorry but then does nothing to try and make that better for the future I guess cookies are probably one of the ways that people are most familiar with the GDPR and every website you visit will have a cookie banner. It'll be confusing. You'll probably hit accept without knowing what you're accepting. If you do check what you're accepting, you'll probably be confused because there's a million toggles to switch. They may be on, they may be off. You don't know what you're doing. And I think whoever cracks the issue of cookie-less marketing and i don't know what that looks like but whoever manages to crack that is going to be building something very interesting from a marketing perspective yeah it's a really interesting space that and i don't feel that the cookie policy it's become a it's just become an annoyance when you go into a website unfortunately and the approach to gdpr in some respects has also been similar in providing consent if you're using a out of EU website where there's like lots of pop-ups now and that isn't the best user experience but then is this because there's just such a knowledge gap between the politicians and the lawmakers and the actual people that are working in these industries in marketing in technology you know you only have to see like the interviews of congress with amazon and facebook and google to see the knowledge gap is just huge you know, these, these laws are date within like three, four months. That whole kind of process just isn't quick enough, I don't think. So it's quite, it's quite a big challenge that I think we'll start to see maybe quite a few more changes in the next year. I'm still waiting for the ICO to publish their guidance on direct marketing. I know they published a draft earlier this year, which was interesting because it really crystallised some of the thinking around how to handle cookies well, things like analytics should be by consent only, and consent does not mean hitting accept on a banner that you're not going to read. It's very interesting what they're thinking, but until they enforce it, obviously it's kind of almost redundant because businesses won't change unless they need to. Yeah, it's almost, it almost becomes best practice, doesn't it? But that's like the bare minimum that you should be looking at doing to be legally compliant. Yeah, it's a really interesting space. I think consumers will be, will demand more. I think we can already start to see that. Have you seen more demand from a strategic point of view of businesses asking how to comply with these things? Yeah, I have actually. I have seen there's there's a lot more conversations about GDPR. There's a lot more conversations of how should we be handling data. It doesn't necessarily mean that all recommendations are implemented. Because that's a different scenario. But it, 
you know, there's good, healthy conversation. I've had really good conversations with sales teams as well, in particular, where there is a lot of data being handled there and good checking in times when, is it okay to do this? And what about if I do this? And as I always say to all clients, you know, put yourself in the shoes of that particular person, of that customer. Imagine that is you do a reversal and think, okay, and that, and you know, you're about to do this with that person's data and that's you. How would you feel about that? I had a fantastic example of this this morning. There is a data enrichment company who sent me an email saying they were going to send me cakes, but I just had to give them my address. <laughs> and from what? I love cake. From the second point of view, their business is selling data and they're asking me for my home address. So I declined that one because I don't particularly want them having if they're in the business of selling it. No, that's a, that's a really imaginative approach though. They must know that you love cake from somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that they were even looking to collect the data to sell it. They may very well be looking to just send me cake. You should test it out and see. Yeah, I'm, I'm wearing my tinfoil hat right now, I think. Yeah, I still, you know, I'm amazed at how many emails I get about, we have this amazing data that you can buy that we've sourced from here. And I'm like, just come on, let's do, just do a quick search, you know, maybe just on LinkedIn and you'll see that I'm not going to be interested in that. <laughs> There's still a lot of them. It almost became, it almost became you know, the PPI of, in, of insurance claims, you know, GDPR, and we're still yet to see that. But it's, you know, it's interesting what you're saying about the ISO potentially being a little bit more lenient. I think, you know, in one sense, I understand that, but I just think that gives quite a negative repercussions. Because when do you stop being lenient? When do you start being like, the, you know, the rule makers again and stop being lenient? I guess there were those fines. Is it with Marriott and British Airways that are still not being chased or paid? And they were in the hundreds of millions. Oh, so they still haven't been paid? No, um, and I think they're indefinitely not going to be paid. Interesting. Which is crazy because these new amounts of finding business, but yet to actually action them. Well, this is it. You know, the law is only as powerful as the enforcement. So if there is no enforcement or there seem to be just headlines and no real action, businesses will just think, well, you know, they got away with it. So I'm willing to take that risk, which is a shame for the consumer. At the end of the day, really. Yeah, and I guess we wear our marketing hats, but we're also consumers. And we have to think about who has access to our data as well. Completely. I totally agree. I always, always want to come at everything that I do from a consumer. You know, my passion is about making the experience for the consumer the best it could possibly be without being disruptive. You know, I don't know if you've been watching anything on YouTube lately. Wow, there is a lot of adverts now. <laughs> YouTube is the website that made me finally use an ad blocker because it was a combination of a lot of adverts and none of them being relevant to my interests. Uh, I'd listen to some drum and bass and would get an advert for Justin Bieber. And it's just like, no, this is not what I want to see right now uh, or ever, really. <laughs> yeah, you know, like we've been just watching old sitcoms and things like that and there was just adverts coming in within it's like they're all timed so it must be within like I don't know 15 minutes an advert will come in about playing this game it's like play now it's like now because I'm like halfway through watching something and I'm not a gamer so no that's not for me I completely agree it's just so and I wonder if when you log in and you have an account if it's a different experience yeah it's the ads are absolutely insane right now on YouTube. I've seen a lot of people comment about it. That's very disruptive though. It could be a much more enhanced experience before and at the end, you know, all right in the middle about something that is related to what you're watching to. Then of course, brilliant. That's an amazing thing to do. Or even, I guess, helping larger channels do in video content. So it's not even an ad, it's just part of the video you're watching. Yeah, exactly. Get more creative with it. There's a, a new lawsuit that came out, I guess, last month against Salesforce and Oracle, I believe, for their, their ad platforms in that they're collecting data from tens of thousands of websites about consumers building these profiles for ad targeting without the knowledge or consent of the people who, ha who are having their data collected. Is that not what Facebook does every day? Oh, yeah, of course. But 
it's I guess it's easier to target other businesses than Facebook right now. <laughs> I, I haven't actually seen that about Salesforce and Oracle. It's interesting. Kind of peace. And, you know, Facebook for me is like right at the core of all of that. Um, is watch the space moment because, yeah, I just think Facebook is so powerful now. It's almost too late to try to regulate that. Really interesting time. There was that new report published by a committee in the US, which was about kind of needing to break up these big technology companies in the US. So it's certainly things are, I want to say happening, they're not happening. Whether that actually materializes and turns into something, we'll see. But it's certainly interesting, both in the EU and the US, that people are talking about breaking up Amazon. They're talking about breaking up Google and Facebook and Microsoft and all of these gigantic companies that I think we lose sight of just how much they know about us. Yeah, and especially with smart devices and, you know, your fridge knowing what you buy and (laughs) Amazon Alexa listening into conversations even when you've told her to turn off now and, you know, smart hoovers that are mapping your floor space. You know, it's and having a, a smart doorbell that will see who goes in and out of your house all the time. Yeah, that records even passers by. Yeah, I've seen loads of footage of in America of bears going past and things like that. <laughs> but um, yeah, you know, that's a whole nother level and kind of goes back to like what we were saying earlier, you know, that knowledge gap is growing and it is getting really, really big. Cause this, you know, this kind of evolution in technology and the smart devices is something that's taken quite a while to have a wide adoption. But now anything that's new that's made typically will have a smart device in it, whether it's Amazon or, or Google. And I don't really think that consumers fully understand that. I don't think they're fully educated in, you know, what Alexa actually records and stores and where that goes. And so it's like another layer and another level to thinking about, you know, GDPR and data to that's another type of, le- another type of data set. Start then mapping all that together. That's an incredible amount of information. On the knowledge gap side of things, how do you think we, we can fix that in marketing teams in terms of, you know, it's, it's very easy for someone to just copy and paste a tracking script and put it into Google Tag Manager. How do you think we fix the knowledge gap in terms of, you know, helping that person who is doing that thing, knowing what the repercussions of that particular action are in terms of what data has been collected? Yeah, I think there has to be like a willingness to learn. And unfortunately, I think for a number of marketers, it's self-study, you know, it's in your own time. It's not necessarily something that the company has supported either financially or by time. There's some really good short online courses um, like the IDM have a really great GDPR certificate and it's all completely online it gives you such a good um, grounding of all the things you should be thinking about when you're handling data to comply with GDPR and it is really good I think that is such a brilliant starting point just have that awareness just question okay what I'm doing now would that actually comply with this and to start that conversation and then it's a case of really trying to keep on keep up to date with that. But I don't, I don't, I don't really know what the winning formula is. I think it's a really difficult space to keep up to date with. Constantly changing. You know, there's things there that you said about that I didn't, I didn't know about. Um, I'm fortunate to be a member of the DMA email council, where regularly these things are brought up and highlighted. And there is a, a legal hub that tries to showcase on a regular basis. And give advice and, and um, some pointers really in the right direction, making sure that you're legally compliant. Because there's also PECA as well. There isn't just GDPR. And not many people talk about PECA because it doesn't have that same level of awareness as the GDPR. And I guess this is where the, the direct marketing guidance that the ICO will be hopefully publishing soon kind of comes in because it mixes PECA with GDPR and informs, you know, what is a soft opt-in? How does that work under GDPR? It's not consent, um, at least what their guidance was saying, their draft guidance was saying is it's, you're not collecting consent if you're operating under something like a soft opt-in, it's legitimate interest. What does that mean? 
and it's it's very interesting to think about how those two regulations interact yeah and i think that i mean that would be incredibly useful for marketers to have some form of guidance and handbook almost to go back to and refer back to as and when you know that moment arises because you might learn about that today so actually relevant right here and now and i think that's probably the bit that's not there isn't that like go-to guide right now and that has to come from the regulators really um and that's that really is probably one of the biggest missing pieces it's it's a lack of guidance and it's i don't want to say a lack of interest from a marketer's perspective but a lot of them see it as an obstacle um, to them being able to deliver what they're being told they need to, to deliver on a daily basis um because you know one of my and i want to call it my personal crusade because it sort of is is email tracking and email tracking operates in a in a view without consent without legitimate interest it is done without in most cases telling anyone that it's happening how does that fit within the framework of what we're doing and in some cases you know i've spoken to many email marketers they don't want to know about it they don't want to think about it it's the sky is falling on their head if they suddenly lose this tracking which in many cases is understandable because it's the only way they can prove that they are doing the work that they need to be doing yes it's really it's an interesting topic that um i've had lots of mixed reactions <laughs> and uh, actually wrote a piece for only influences about hey.com that has tried to you know it's kind of just remove the taboo i think really and kind of opened the bonnet and started to change things around. Not to say that they're necessarily going to be successful in that, but it was a very bold approach and very clearly about tracking and pixel tracking in, in particular, which is what I was very interested in. Yeah, I've spoken, you know, to a lot of email marketers. Elliot Ross in particular has a really good kind of perspective in thinking about actually, surely, you know, the ISPs can do something more sophisticated here surely they could also be helping to drive this forward which i completely agree with the thing right now with isps is that i can very much want to not track someone but actually within the tools that i use that's not an option even if i don't want to track them and the customer or the recipient doesn't want to be tracked the only way to not track them is to not send them an email um, so that is a big technological challenge yeah uh, so there's yeah, the ISPs, the ESPs and all of those help, you know, enable you to be able to do that. There's such a, but that doesn't mean that it shouldn't be something we should be talking about. And I feel it's a conversation that, yes, is a difficult one to have completely. And it's an important one to have because I do feel that we're all hiding behind that completely. I don't think that I've ever seen any openly clear we're going to be tracking you part in the consent ever and i don't think consumers really realize that that's what's happening you tend to see that reaction when there's too much personalization to the point where it feels creepy and that is why because they don't realize that they're being tracked that you know that's the cause of that don't realize the amount of information that they've shared directly or indirectly and that all of that's been mapped together yeah it's it's really interesting i did I've tried to stimulate some kind of more like kind of just some momentum with this conversation and this was all pre-COVID and then obviously COVID happened so it's been difficult but there is a group of people in the email industry um, that have similar perceptions to you there's other people that think well do you know what we just couldn't lose that and that's what we need we need we need all those different opinions to come together so that we can have some form of recommendation of how we can combat this. Because I think as an, as an industry, we should be helping to drive that forward rather than just waiting for so many complaints that either it gets removed altogether and there's just nothing or, you know, it just continues as it is and we all just kind of hide behind it and don't want to talk about it. And I think, that isn't really the email community that we are. No, and I think the risk is that if we don't do anything about it, someone will do something about it for us and it won't be what we want to see. Exactly, I agree. So, yeah, I think, I mean, that's, you and I helped pick that up, I think. There is a group of people that are very interested across 
UK, Europe and the States as well, which I think is really important because it is global and we need to get technology providers also brought into this. But just starting to have that conversation, as difficult as it might be, as challenging as it might be, you know, probably all hate each other afterwards. At least we've had, you know, that open conversation because that's how that's how things change. That's how things improve. Like we can do better, I think. And I think there is a real passion to be really quite open about it. But if we're limited in that we can't turn it off anyway, then already that's a massive barrier to being open with that tracking. I think probably on on that very positive note, we may be having to call it a day. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really, really appreciate it.